Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Good evening and welcome to tonight's program hosted by the Commonwealth Club of Silicon Valley. My name is John Zimmer. It is my pleasure to introduce Ben Horowitz, co-founder and general partner at Andreessen Horowitz and author of What You Do Is Who You Are, How to Create Your Business Culture. Ben grew up in Oakland and graduated with degrees in computer science from Columbia University and UCLA. He started his career at Silicon Graphics and later co-founded Opsware, which was later acquired by Hewlett-Packard. Ten years ago, Ben co-founded Andreessen Horowitz. His presence in the tech and venture capital community is far-reaching, but it is also important to acknowledge his personal leadership and advocacy work in changing our criminal justice system and helping people who get out of jail stay out of jail. Ladies and gentlemen, please join me in welcoming Ben Horowitz. Hello. All right, John. Thank you. All right. So this is special for me uh, because if I look back just uh, seven or so years ago, when Lyft started, I looked up to and still look up to uh, Ben Horowitz. So, so being here is, uh, is super special. And we started working together right at the height of the cultural question. Yeah. Uh, I think <laughs> well, we... In the bad old days. Yeah. Things were very rough. Yeah. It was pretty wild. Uh, we were a few years into our time with Lyft. And most people thought at the time that we asked Ben to join our board, most people thought Lyft uh, was going to fail. That lift was going to be crushed. Yeah, when he says most, he would, it's like almost everybody. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yes, I remember. Yeah. Uh, but in uh, 2017, uh, 2017, we started seeing signs of our competitors' mm-hmm. cultural problems. Um, and so why, why did you join our board? Yeah, so <laughs> I, of course, joined before, right before that, or, or not long before that. Um, but... I would say the reason that I joined didn't actually, we'll get into the competitors' cultural problems, but um, didn't have to do with that so much. So, you know, you, you guys were under tremendous pressure. So much pressure, it's funny. When we did, when Lyft went public and Andrew Ross Sorkin interviewed me, the thing he said to me before the interview was, Ben, I never thought these guys were going to make it. I can't even believe we're here. Like, this is crazy. Uh, so that's how, how much people doubted it. But... You know, when I went to see you, I was like, well, these guys have to be under, like, amazing amount of pressure. Um, and I had been through that kind of pressure, so I knew what it felt like. And when I went to see you, like, and I could tell how much pressure you were under, and you hit it, like, a little better than Logan. Logan already speaks slowly, and it was like he could barely even breathe. And it was just like that whole feeling, and I knew that feeling. But the thing that impressed me so much was, like, how, like, you guys were committed to, like, we're going to die on this one. Like, there is no way we are backing off or not going to try and build this company. We're going to, like, tell we have no, like, breath, nothing. We're hanging on by our fingernails. We're going to get the money. We're going to keep building the company. We're going to go. And, um, you know, having seen a lot of people in trouble, but nobody is in bad trouble as you were, um, <laughs> and seeing that attitude, that that really made me want to kind of join the board. Um, so when you asked me, I, I was actually excited to do it because I was like, okay, I, I know what this is. I want to be on this team. Um, but with, with Uber, it was, you know, if it had just been a bad culture, 
we would have had a much easier time with it. Um, but it was kind of partly a really good and powerful culture and partly a very bad culture. And so, like, if you looked at, and I think, yeah, I mean, <laughs> you and I, we I'll say it out loud because you probably can't, but, like, we're kind of glad that, like, Travis is not CEO <laughs> um, because he did do some certain things very well. Uh, and if you look at the original definition of the Uber culture, it was really well-defined, and, and there's even a book by Mike Isaac, you know, with one of the things, Super Pumped. And these are like, you know, cultural values, always be hustling, um, toe-stomping, or whatever that he had in there. Um, so he had built this culture and trained people on it and got them to follow it, uh, and they really did, but it was kind of characterized most specifically by, like, competitiveness. Like, they wanted to crush competition more than anything, that was what drove the whole company and so forth. And the thing that made the culture, at least in my view, go bad was they didn't say how far was too far. There was no ethical, legal, any kind of line. And so if somebody felt like they were doing something that was improving their competitiveness, they would just do it. And, you know, like we all learned about that when Susan Fowler wrote the blog post, which basically... She goes to work at Uber, and first day on the job, her manager sexually harasses her in writing, like, you know, in a chat. So, like, very obvious. So she, likes, you know, takes a screenshot of it, sends it to HR, and the HR person is, says, well, he's a high performer, so, like, you can transfer. And anybody, like, who's run anything knows, well, like, that's so illegal, <laughs> You have to, if somebody makes a claim, you have to investigate it regardless. And if they, may, and if they have the screenshot of it, like, that's a very credible claim. <laughs> so what would cause a person to do that? And it really is, the culture of competitiveness was so strong. And the complete silence on, you know, anything else or anything as far as, like, ethical or what the limit was. And that, if you look at all the transgressions that they had, they were all of that nature, be it Anthony Lewandowski and stealing the Google IP or getting the medical records of the woman in India or uh, what do they call it, Project Hell, <laughs> when they hacked our app. So, like, the whole thing was just, in order to compete, um, we're going to do whatever it takes. Uh, and there is no limit. And that, that was the thing that kind of eventually unwound them, but... Um, Thankfully, that was good. But it would have been easier if they were just like a bunch of idiots with a bad culture. But they had a kind of somewhat, like they, they had part of a great culture and then a fatal flaw. So it's, a lot of people use the word culture. Um, why, why did you think it was so important to dedicate a book to, to writing about business culture? And a lot of this came from you know, my experience as CEO. So when I started as CEO, uh, you know, I, I asked the kind of, CEOs that I looked up to, okay, what should I, how do I become, like, really good at this job? And they said, well, pay attention to the culture, Ben. And I was like, okay, great, how do I do that? And, yeah, they, that was basically, it was like, <laughs> Scooby-Doo. Right, so. <laughs> so I kind of didn't really know how to do it, and I knew, like, I could kind of sense that it was going bad and so forth, and it was really confusing to me. And as I got into it... Um, I realized it's a very difficult but important thing in that you have 
an organization, you've got a mission statement, you have all the management techniques, you have KPIs, OKRs, whatever you're using, you know, goals and objectives. But none of that is really what the culture is. And none of that really drives the real kind of day-to-day behaviors that define you. Like, do you return that phone call like immediately, tomorrow, next week, never? You know, do you show up to the meeting on time? Are you late? Do you go home at five o'clock? Do you go home at eight o'clock? Do you stay at the Four Seasons? Do you stay at the Red Roof Inn? Like all these things are your culture, um, but there's not really, they're not defined anyway. So how do they get, like, how does that behavior go? And anybody's worked in the company knows you're either this way or you're that way, or you're, you know, you're on time or you're not, you're never on time or you're always on time or, or, or whatever it is. Those are all these cultural elements. And the, kind of advice that you get when you're CEO is all wrong on it because it's like, oh, well, what you do is you go and you have an offsite and then you kind of have everybody say what they think the cultural values are and then you put them on like a nice, you know, plaque <laughs> and then you, oh, but we're really going to operationalize it here. We're going to put it in people's performance review. Well, you don't even know if they got the phone call. How do you know if they return the phone call? Like, what are you talking about performance review? You don't know that then. And so how do you move the culture? How do you influence the culture? How do you shape a culture? That became, uh, I thought, important enough to write the book. Um, but then, you know, as I got into it more, the thing that I realized is that is what your company is. Um, and I love the, the quote from The Way of the Samurai that I use in the book, which is like a culture is not a set of beliefs. It's a set of actions which is why I called the book, what you do is who you are. It's not what you believe. It's not what you think. It's not what you tweet. It's what you do. It's not the values you, that you have. That's not who you are. Who you are is what you do. And in, in the samurai, they call them virtues because it's the behaviors. The behaviors are the culture, not the values. And that's why when people have 20 values, I'm like, well, how many of those behaviors do you have? Like none. So your culture is hypocrisy. Uh, and so the book is really about like how do you get how do you get that behavior? Yep. And then uh, in the book you introduce four distinct leaders uh, mm-hmm. to to illustrate uh, different examples of how culture can be affected. Um, what drew you to those those four stories? Yeah. So they're all different. So the, I'll take the first one, which is uh, the story of Toussaint Louverture and the Haitian Revolution. And the reason I picked the Haitian Revolution, and actually I can bring, I'll bring it back to Uber because I, I compare it to uh, what Toussaint did to, to what Travis did um, and, and what Dara did, actually, interestingly. But uh, the Haitian Revolution is remarkable because it's the only successful slave revolt in human history. So the only slave revolt that ever resulted in an independent state. Um, and you think about it, like the history of slavery in humanity is very, very long. Um, you know, it goes back beyond the Bible days. Uh, and you have to wonder, well, why has there only been one successful slave revolt? That it, you know, Certainly people were motivated. If you're going to fight for anything, you would fight for freedom. But why did only one work? And when you get into the details, it really turns out that slavery is super destructive to culture, particularly in the military sense, in that you know, a lot of culture is based on you know, what kind of behaviors do you want over, you, you, know, you need a long-term view of the world in order kind of for culture to matter. And in particular, uh, one element of culture that's really central to military culture is trust. And that's really hard in slave culture because 
you trust is a long-term idea and that I'm going to do something for you today because I trust that in the future, sometime in the future, like it will come back to me. But if you're a slave, there's no like, what are you going to do tomorrow? You don't own tomorrow. You don't own your life. Like your family can be removed tomorrow. You can be killed tomorrow. You don't dictate what you do. And so it's hard to take that long. It's hard to get from that to a military culture where if you don't trust the order, then you have chaos. So you have to have trust in that. And so Toussaint had this problem of how do I go from slave culture to military culture? And, you know, the story is remarkable. I I won't go through the whole thing because it's a whole book, but uh, he uses a variety of different techniques to kind of move to this military culture. And what he achieved was amazing. So he not only defeated the Spanish army, the British army, and this is British army at the height of the British empire. So they were most powerful and Napoleon. Uh, and Napoleon wanted him gone like super bad. He hated Toussaint. And one of the, uh, one of the things that he did, um, was around this idea of ethics. So just in the same way, Travis ignored ethics. Toussaint went the exact opposite way. So when you think about the Haiti at that time, it was known, it was basically the greatest sugar colony in the world. And that's why the British and the Spanish and the French were all fighting for it. They all wanted the sugar. And so it's the most mercenary war environment you can imagine because they're literally fighting over sugar. And like raping, pillaging, the whole thing. And Toussaint has a slave army. And he makes this rule, no pillaging. Um, And the reason he says is you can't pillage because we're fighting for liberty. They're fighting for sugar. We're fighting for liberty. And you can't get liberty if you're taking people's liberty. So very, very clear connected the culture to the mission to the whole thing. But the stories are basically the Spanish go in and they light the plantations on fire. They kill all the animals. They rape the women. They steal everything. And then the slave army goes in. And these guys are starving. They're half naked. They don't even have clothes. And they touch nothing. And there's no violence. And the, the knock-on effect of that culture was Toussaint got the support of the locals in Haiti, the white people, particularly the white women, who referred to him as father. This is a slave running a revolt <laughs> on a colony, getting that kind of accomplishment. And you put that all together and you compare that to, okay, then you go back to Uber where, okay, he just silent on, on ethics, lost the support of everybody. Then his replacement comes in and what does he say? Well, our thing is just do the right thing, period. Well, what the hell does that mean? Nobody even knows what that means. Like, what's the right thing? Because, like, if you go back to the Haitian Revolution, kind of the right thing being pillaging because so you can pay these guys so they can win their revolt and so they can free the slaves. Like, wouldn't that potentially be the right thing? You've got to say what the right thing is. You have to be explicit. You have to create the meaning behind the ethics. And so um, <laughs> this is a long answer to the, or to the beginning of your question, but you know, I think it's very difficult for people to see culture when it's their culture. So if you're in Silicon Valley, you know, you know, like showing up to an interview on time or like, you know, combing your hair for it or whatever, that you just kind of do that. You don't think of that as a cultural thing, but it is a cultural thing. 
but when you look at it through the lens of the ancient samurai or the Haitian Revolution or prison or Genghis Khan, then you see the culture and you can see what he did. And so that's why I thought um, th- those examples uh, would work. You just mentioned yeah. uh, combing your hair and things like that. Yeah. Uh, what's what's the importance of first impressions uh, in terms of bringing <laughs> people into a new culture? Yeah, so this is a, so this is a great example of why I use the examples. So I tell CEOs all the time, I'm like, like you got to take new employee orientation seriously. You have to take integration seriously. You have to take onboarding seriously. And I go through, and I always, and people rarely listen to me on that, you know, so I've been doing this for years. Um, so the way I told in the book, rather than go through like, okay, this person gets hired and this is what happens if you don't train them, I tell the story through the eyes of Shaka Senghor. So Shaka Senghor went to prison um, when he was 19 years old for a murder that he did commit uh, in a sense to 19 years to life. So his first day in prison, very first day, He's in the rec area, and a prisoner walks up to another prisoner and stabs him in the neck. And then he pulls the shank out. The prisoner bleeds to death and dies. He throws the shank in the garbage and goes to the cafeteria and has a sandwich. And Chuck is telling me this story, and he said, you know, we see that. We're all looking at us like, where the hell are we at? And then I had to ask myself, could I do that? And I said, wait a minute, Chuck, you did that. You were in for murder. Like, what are you talking about? Could you do that? He said, no, 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 no. I didn't do that. He said, what I did was, like, I first of all, I'd been shot, like, 18 months earlier. I had PTSD. I was paranoid all the time. I'm in a drug deal. A guy's coming. There's two guys in the car. One guy I knew who was supposed to be there. Another guy I didn't know who wasn't supposed to be there. And the guy I don't know is supposed to stay in the car. And he gets out of the car and starts coming at me. And I have a gun in my pocket. I react. I shoot him. That's what I did. He said, what this guy did is he spent weeks taking a two-liter bottle and filing it into a weapon. Then he decided, am I going to stab this guy in the stomach and wound him? Or am I going to stab him in the neck and kill him? And then he stabs him in the neck, throws it in the trash, keeps it moving to the chow hall, and has a sandwich. I couldn't do that. But I knew that if I was going to survive here, that's what I would have to learn how to do. And that's New employee orientation. That's how you get oriented into a culture. <laughs> and so, you know, I have CEOs that are like, you think those values on the wall are what going to cause people's behavior? No, it's when they come in and they say, oh, that's the guy who's got the big title and the big salary, and he just took credit for her work. So that's what you have to do to succeed here. That's your culture. That's what you're going to get. And so if you don't know what that experience is, what it looks like walking into your company, when people look at who's successful and look at the behaviors and decide how they're going to behave to succeed, then you're not doing it. And so, yeah, no, first impressions matter a ton. And anybody who's ever gone to a job, that's a, you're paying such incredible attention that first week, you want to understand how every single thing in that organization works. And good or bad. On the wall or not on the wall, like that's what you're going to do. Uh, and so it's really, really, really important to think these things through. And, and, I, and you know, I wish people who, who ran the prison system would think about these things because that's how you get, how, how do you get so violent in prison? Well, that's how you get so violent. Um, slight change. Of when, I, when I moved out here from the East Coast, um, something that struck me is how much Silicon Valley uh, values the idea 
the culture mm-hmm. uh, here is around breakthrough ideas. Yeah. What's your idea? What are you doing uh, to, to change the world? Why, right. why do you think that's true? Well, I think, look, the, it, it's kind of the thing about innovation, and it's a little bit why um, big companies have such a hard time with innovation. So an innovative idea, by definition, um, sounds like a bad idea at the time. And so, like, if you think about my job in venture capital, we always say, like, we're in the business of looking for bad ideas, good ideas that look like bad ideas. Um, and the reason is, like, if everybody thought it was a good idea, then it wouldn't be innovative. And so just so like a thing that we want fun might be a longer life battery in a cell phone because that's like obviously a good idea, which means like Apple and Samsung and big companies are going to be working on it. So it's not like a breakthrough. It's like everybody knows that you need a longer battery for your phone. But that's not like the breakthrough idea. So we fund our things that seem like but now the problem with bad ideas or things that look like bad ideas is the other thing that looks like bad ideas a bad idea um, <laughs> and so big companies are really good at prioritizing their ideas so that they do the best ideas first and then you know and then they get rid of the bad ideas but the problem with getting rid of the bad ideas is that's where like the innovative ideas are and so how do you deal with that and so a lot of you know, what Silicon Valley is about is, well, why is this bad idea a good idea? And what is the secret behind it? And so if you take, um, well, take Lyft, for example. Okay, like, I'm going to drive around. I'm going to pick up strangers in my car. Um, they're going to pay me some money. And I think in the early days, they weren't even paying me much, like a tip or whatever. And so, you put a yeah. pink mustache on the car. Yeah, and a, and a pink mustache. And I'm like, that doesn't, it's like, really what, what, what could possibly go wrong with that idea? <laughs> um, but you had a, you guys had a secret, right? Um, uh, but Logan had been to Zimbabwe, and in Zimbabwe, they have this idea that, you know, that's the way cars work, yeah. is that, you know, people give each other rides. And um, then they appreciate it, and it works, and it, it's, everything is better. Um, and you said, like, well, maybe we can transport that idea here. So there's, you had a secret, which is you knew how it worked in Zimbabwe, and then the idea was to bring that to the U.S., and, you know, and it would end up working, like, pretty well. So, but if you were a big company and somebody said, okay, we're going to do that, they would be like, that's idiotic. We have eight ideas that work way better. And so that's when you lose the culture of innovation, when you, only prioritize the good ideas. Yep. Uh, something you talk about is how your story is your strategy. I think it'd be helpful to hear, like, mm-hmm. what, what do you mean by that, and what if you want to change your story? Yeah, so let me, um, and I probably am overloading the terms a little. So the one of the things that I think I said in the first book was, uh, and it's something that you do, you personally do very well, um, but most companies don't, which is, they go, oh, well, the story, that's just like whatever, you know, that's like a marketing thing. Um, but it turns out that the story, the story of the company, the long version, the 30-minute, hour, two-hour version of the story is a strategy. Like, so whatever you describe your company at length, that's the strategy. And so if you don't have a great story, you don't have a strategy that people in your company actually understand. And that's a huge mistake that CEOs make all the time. Uh, and and culture and strategy go together for a lot of reasons. So 
you know, people go, well, what kind of culture should I have? And I'm like, I don't know. It depends what kind of company you have, right? Because your culture has to support your company. And just an example on this. So Amazon, which is, you know, known for uh, a kind of very great and pronounced culture, like one of their culture elements is frugality. Um, and they go very, very far with this whole frugality thing. They used to give you a, a door, like with two, you know, two by, on two by fours, and that was your desk, just to let you know they were cheap. You know, they're a strong signal. Um, but their company strategy was to be the price leader in retail, so that if you went to Amazon, you wouldn't have to comparison shop. Like there were all these in the early days, there were all these like comparison shopping engines and so forth. But Amazon just said, "Look, we're going to be cheapest." And so that went together. Now you go to Apple, <laughs> like they don't have that cultural element. Their campus cost $5 billion. The doorknobs cost probably $2,000, whatever. I don't know what they cost. And so they're high design. They want to build the most beautiful products in the world. And so that wouldn't be a smart cultural thing for them because that's not their story. And they're, you know, they will always build more beautiful products than Amazon. <laughs> and Amazon's products are not beautiful, but they'll never compete with Amazon on price. And so, you know, depending on your strategy, you, you adopt a different culture. Um, now, stories uh, can play a different role in culture, which, um, and the, the ancient samurai was great at this. So one of the things that's hard to do, so you have some cultural element. Let's say you have loyalty. Um, and you want that in your culture, but... Like, how do you get people to understand the importance of it? And sometimes you can do that through a story. And, and so in, um, in the samurai, there's, there's this legendary story of this guy, Lord Soma. Um, and Lord Soma was known because he had the best genealogy of anybody. And so that was, they didn't have like Louis Vuitton and, you know, um, whatever, Tom Ford and all these things. So they, you know, for status, they had like, did, how good was your family tree? That was the thing where you could really show off. Um, and so everybody like, this guy had the best genealogy and he, you know, went back for centuries and centuries. Um, and then he had the samurai working for him who was like a very mediocre guy, like not clumsy, not very good at anything. But Lord Soma really liked him because he was very, very loyal. Um, and so one day, Lord Soma's house starts burning down. It's engulfed in flames. Just, you know, th there's no way that you can save this house. And his genealogy, the they call it the Chaikan Marikoshi, was in the house. And it's burning up with the house. And his samurai says, I'll go in and get it. And Lord Soma says, no, no, you're just going to die. I don't want to lose you and the scroll. Like, it's gone. Don't go in there. And the samurai says, nope. You know, I know I've not been that great a samurai, but I'm going in and getting that scroll. And he goes into the house, and everybody is terribly sad because they know he's going to die. And the house burns to the ground, and they go in and look for him, look for the body. And sure enough, you know, face down, all burned up, there he is. But they notice there's like a pool of blood around him. And they're like, wow, what's that? So they turn him over, and there's a cut down the middle of his stomach. And they open the cut, and they reach in, and there is the genealogy. He cut himself open, put the genealogy in there, and saved it from the fire. And it was known from then on as the blood genealogy. And that let everybody know you could be mediocre, but if you were loyal, you could be a legend. And 
so they got that into the culture in a big way. And, of course, samurai are known for their loyalty. Um, but, you know, those kinds of stories are very powerful. At, well, at Cisco, which was also a cheap culture in the early days, under John Morgridge, he had this thing that he said, if you can, can't see your car from your hotel room, you're paying too much. <laughs> <laughs> That's a story that everybody's going to repeat because it's so funny. Yeah. And, I mean, you know you're not staying at the Four Seasons. or Like John Morgridge finds out about that, that's a problem. You are listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. Learn about our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live for any of our 500 programs each year. You can find us online at commonwealthclub.org. Now back to our program. Um, one thing that I think we weigh sometimes is like cultural cohesion versus uh, an individual employee yeah, and that yeah. employee's performance. How, how do you, uh, when is one more important than the other? Yeah, so look, I think almost always cultural cohesion is more important than a single employee. And I think this is one of the things we always, in Silicon Valley, and, and you know this, like we, we get very, very attracted to like, IQ, horsepower, like how smart somebody is. Um, but at the end of the day, I mean, how many people are working at Lyft now? Uh, over 5,000. Yeah, so you need 5,000 people to work well and enjoy working there and so forth. And so that's, you know, like the culture is what their work experience is like and what it's like to work with Lyft. And so there's no individual performance that's going to exceed that. Now, um, there is this kind of exception. And John Madden, the old uh, coach of the Raiders and of Madden football fame used to say, look, on a football team, there's one guy you can hold the bus for, um, which meant <laughs> what he meant by that is everybody's got to be on time for the bus. But like there might be one player on the team that's so good that you'll actually hold the bus and not just leave and go to the game without him. Um, and I think the best kind of articulation of this was from uh, Phil Jackson when he was coaching the Bulls teams where they, you know, they had Michael Jordan, Scottie Pippen, and Dennis Rodman. <laughs> and Dennis Rodman, would it would be very hard to get him to go to practice every day. And Phil Jackson made this rule that for Dennis Rodman, he doesn't have to practice every day. And a reporter said, well, does that mean Michael Jordan doesn't have to practice every day? He said, no, what are you, stupid? And the reporter goes, what do you mean? Dennis Rodman doesn't have to practice. He's like, yeah, Dennis Rodman. He's like, you can only have one Dennis Rodman on a team. In fact, you can only have one Dennis Rodman in society, or we'd have anarchy. <laughs> like, it's not. And so, yeah, if you have a super special talent and you can define them as outside the culture, like we're all behaving this way, there are no excuses. And if you can, you know, like if you're like that special and weird, um, maybe, you know, like, but you're not. So don't even ask. You know, that, 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 that's the kind of exception you can make on that what do you what do you hope people take from the book well i mean so the the biggest thing is you know can you culture is a very complex thing um there's so many things that affect it and drive it every decision you make um you know things that you say to one person that you know another person hears third hand all these kinds of things and so you know, I go through a lot of the techniques on that, but the, the big thing is, like, can you see it? Can you see it moving as a leader? Do you understand what it is? Can you identify it? Can you see it when it shifts? And because people won't come to you and say, 
the culture is messed up in this way. They'll say, our culture is broken. It's messed up. And you'll be like, F off. Like, I have so many problems. Why are you telling me this? I don't even, what am I going to do if my culture is broken? Uh, so it's kind of a set of tools to really help you see and move your own culture and, and get it to where it needs to go. And it's so important because, you know, work is such a big part of every, like when you think about building a company, you know, like, you know, I own all, you know, like I, I own all of the lift stock that I have. So like, you know, it's all of it. We haven't distributed anything. We believe in the company. We love you guys. So I want you to succeed. But the more important thing is, you know, what was it like for everybody who worked there every day? Like, was that making their lives better or worse? And then that translates into all the customers and all the drivers and like, what are their lives like because of the company? And that all is much more of a function of culture than anything else. And so it's so important and people just don't know how to do it. And so my hope is that the book helps people kind of get better at it. You never get perfect. It's a, you know, even Toussaint screwed up a bunch of things that cost him a lot in the end, but it's, uh, you can certainly get better. Nice. Um, a lot of your writings or almost all your writings, you start with quotes from hip hop. Uh, (laughs) and, uh, it's said that it's, or you said it's a hangover from your failed rap career. Um, can you share some more details? Yeah. I know. So because I write about entrepreneurship, um, you know, the story of hip hop is this like very impossible entrepreneurial story. Like the story of the whole art form is that in that, you know, it started, it was literally like a thing they did at parties, <laughs> um, you know, in the Bronx. Uh, and not only it, it was so like not it had so zero support. Um, so, yeah, nobody would play it on the radio. Nobody would sign the rappers. MTV, of course, didn't play the videos. But it's worse. Like the R&B guys hated rap music. Like, nobody liked rap music. They, they, nobody wanted it to go anywhere. And they would run out, like, it started with these things, the breakbeats. And they would run out of um, the records that had the breakbeats. Or, the, the, you know, the, the, they were, they'd get too popular in the Bronx. So there was guys who would make bootleg records like Breakbeats, breakbeats Volume 1 and Breakbeats Volume 2 and that kind of thing. And then this guy, Ralph McDaniels, created his own TV show and started putting rap videos on it. And it was all that entrepreneurial idea that, like, nobody's going to help us. We just have to figure it out. And it went from that to being, you know, today it's the biggest musical art form in the world. And it's in, you know, particularly the early, uh, you know, the first 20 years of it. Like, it's in the music, that entrepreneurial idea, like, how do you go from nothing to something? Um and, you know, what does it take and how do you deal with competition and how do you do all that? So it just ended up being uh, something that was inspirational for my writing. And so I put the hip hop quotes in there to basically give them credit. Um, and I license them so <laughs> they all get paid. <laughs> uh, so I'm going to ask one more question, then we're going to go to the audience questions. Uh, so uh, you're giving your proceeds of this book to anti-recidivism and to nonprofits working in Haiti. Uh, tell us about what those issues mean to you. Yeah, so, well, anti-recidivism, um, you know, our prison system, just to kind of give you an idea of how bad it is on a global basis, so 
the recidivism rate in the U.S. prison system is over 70%. That means you get out of jail and you go back to jail over 70% of the time. And in other countries, it's like in the 30s. And you go, well, like, why is it so bad here? And it really has to do with every incentive in the prison system and the culture of the prison system is designed to make you a lifelong criminal. Uh, and, uh, and look, I'm not like we shouldn't prosecute crimes or something like that. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is you have somebody like Shaka and, you know, I've known him for years. His mother was bipolar. She was super abusive, beat him up, called him stupid all day long and so forth. So he left home when he's 13 years old and he like grew up, literally grew up on the streets. He was you know, homeless for two weeks till the drug dealers adopted him. And then that's the culture he grew up in, which led him right to prison. Um, and like he was a criminal, like 100%. And, you know, that that was what it was. But that wasn't necessarily who he had to be. And he proved that by changing his culture while he was in prison. He's been out 10 years this year. And, you know, he's a best-selling author. He's a, you know, he's a, really important member of the community and he helps so many people coming out of prison uh, kind of stay out of prison. And so, you know, I, I just think we need a much bigger emphasis on how people can change their culture coming out of that place and get back into society because it's definitely possible. And then once you change, you change. You're not a criminal anymore. Like what you do is who you are. As um, And then uh, with Haiti, um, you know, what's happened, and it's a long story, I, I go through it in the book, but, um, you know, it's just tragic how really the kind of, the birthplace of the person who probably did more, or was more influential on ending slavery than any other single individual has kind of turned out to be such a kind of difficult place. Um, but, you know, a lot of the people there, you can tell, like have that, um, you know, have that spirit from the Haitian Revolution. And and so at least we're going to give it a try and see if we can can improve things. Make Haiti great again. That's my thing. <laughs> All right. So first question. It was absolutely great at one time. First question uh, from the audience. Can I restart the culture? I'm a founder and did wrong behaviors. Yeah, absolutely. So, well, this is, this is actually one of my, the big reasons I start with the Haitian Revolution. Look, <laughs> if a guy who's born a slave could change slave culture into military culture and defeat Napoleon, and, and to give you an idea, like a big problem with this trust thing is scale. Like, how do you scale an organization? Um, and the, to give you an idea how hard it is, the largest slave revolt in the history of the United States was 500 people. Haitian Revolution, at its peak, 500,000 people. That's how big a cultural shift he made. And so if you can change that, and he did, you know, some of the techniques he used, officers in that slave army, some of them were, like, from the Spanish army and the French army. So he had those guys in the army alongside. So he was able to do that integration pick up those cultural elements, pick up those military techniques. Um, so if you can do that, <laughs> uh, you can absolutely change it in a company. And quite frankly, like everybody screws up their culture. There's no, like I work with hundreds of companies 
And not one of them has a perfect culture, not even John. Um, you know, there, there's breakage all over the place all the time. Um, but you, uh, you absolutely can change it, but it takes a real concerted effort. All right, next question. If you had to choose a great idea or ethics or values, which do you choose? <laughs> a great idea or ethics or values. Yes. And does your answer change if this is a choice at home or at work? <laughs> um, I don't even know how to think about values that are a great idea at home. I'm not sure. <laughs> like, it's like a better barbecue recipe. Um, look, so... I want to just kind of, I think it's important to clarify a few things. So one is you can have a a really great culture, but if you're building that company off a mediocre idea, the company's still going to fail. Like a culture can't take a idea that's not going to work and make it work like that. You know, that is what it is, particularly if you're committed to that bad idea. Uh, So you just have to be realistic about that. Um, and I think that, uh, look, and as I said, values in a company context are very related to the strategy. Um, and, and as I said, it doesn't matter if they're values. It only matters if they're virtues. So it doesn't matter if you believe them. It only matters if you do them. And so intent, you know, for me, doesn't mean much. Uh, it's only what you do. And, yeah, if a company comes in with bad behavior, <laughs> um, then that would override a lot of things for me, particularly if that behavior was driven um, from the top or or just like if the top couldn't deal with it. Uh, and so, you know, we've kind of talked about Uber as being, okay, they really didn't even make a statement on that. Um, and, you know, regardless of what the intent was, then you have Boeing, which is like another interesting example where, you know, I mean, you run a company, so you understand this. Like, there were 100% engineers that knew that the 737 wasn't safe. And so then you have to think about, well, what was it about the culture where they prioritized whatever they prioritized above safety at Boeing? And, you know, that kind so those kinds of things, yeah, I wouldn't want to be associated with or invest in a culture that had those kinds of ideas. I think that's, um, you know, that's, that's so far, that's gone so bad, uh, that you really have to question the leadership. Um, whereas a lot of times cultural problems, you know, no leader would have been able to anticipate some of the things that happen. And I think we're, you know, we have some cases like that in tech now where they're just hard to anticipate. Like, you know, you build a, you know, app to like share photos with your friends and family and all of a sudden like you're getting blamed for election results. Like that's a big jump. Like it's hard to anticipate. Um, and so I, I don't know that that's, you know, that's a different kind of thing. That's something where, you know, he's got to now adjust to like, it just got so much bigger and more powerful than anybody like nobody thought it was going to get that powerful. Like if you read any article written about them up to like, well, Obama got elected on Facebook in 2008 and everybody was like, hooray, Obama's a genius. <laughs> the social networking is so awesome. And then Trump gets elected and everybody's like, oh, fuck. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody shut that thing down. <laughs> Turn it off, please. 
So, you know, like, it's, hard, it's harder to anticipate that's going to be a problem. Yeah. You touched on this with, with Boeing, uh, potentially, but how do, the next question is, how do, how do you change culture in a large, established organization? Yeah, well, I mean, it's the same way you set culture, to be honest with you, and, and how do you do it? Um, I, you know, you buy my book. <laughs> <coughs> Wrote a whole book on that. <laughs> uh, but it, I, I will say this. It's hard to do. Difference in culture in a society and a culture in an organization is that in an organization, there is definitely top-heavy influence. So it's if you're an employee in an organization, you hate the culture. It, it will be very hard for you to change it. Uh, without the help of like the CEO, um, so the CEO's got to commit to it. Among other things, I mean, there's there's many many kind of elements that that I go through, but um, but that is something that's I, I would say unique to companies. That's not true in say society where you might change the culture with a meme or something like that. Um. Okay, next question. How do you judge from the outside if a company's culture is truly as great as the company claims it is? <laughs> it's very hard. <laughs> um, look, but it, it really has to do with, uh, you know, do, do the people at the working level believe um, that the culture is what they say it is? And, uh, and uh, you know, look, there's actually a really interesting case where, um, so one of the best cultures in tech that everybody I think admires who's in technology is Amazon. Um, they, you know, they do like an amazing job at so many things. So they've got the, the little memo that you have to read before the meeting, you know, so everybody has a prepared mind and, and that kind of thing. And, and they've got the bar raiser and just like so many things they did right. But then this article came out in the New York Times, right, which is like, oh, we interviewed like whatever, 55 people, and they're like all in tears, and they hate working at Amazon. The culture sucks. And when I read that, I was like, oh, that's just a hit job. But then I read the byline, and it's David Streitfeld, who's like, I know him, like, and he's like a really earnest reporter. So like, there's no way he made it up <laughs> or like just found all the sour pusses in the company or whatever. And so, you know, I was kind of digging around to try and understand like, how could those two things be true at the same time? And what turned out, and this is how subtle culture is. It is a great culture if you're a tech worker. Um, tech people love working at Amazon. For the most part, well, not everybody does, but like for the most part, like it's great. People work hard. They're really smart. They get amazing stuff done. They're really good at product definition, all, all these things. But if you came from like Macy's, and they got a lot of people from Macy's and Nordstrom's and all these places that they hired out of retail, like, it's just like going to Mars, you know? Like, it's like, what the fuck? Like, you know, work until 9 o'clock at night? Like, eh, so I'm not going to do that. Like, I can go into retail for that. Like, what are you talking about? And so, you know, Amazon has, you know, I think post the article has really recognized that they've got multiple cultures within the company that they've got to address, and, and it's got to work for everybody. And so that's something where, like, they have to even even the great uh, Amazon has had to you know make adjustments over time, which is um, you know congratulations to them for making, but it just shows you how how difficult these these issues can be. Next question is uh, from Jason: What kind of culture or strategy do you think is best for fintech uh, crypto companies? <laughs> it's very specific. <laughs> that's very specific. <laughs> you, you know, like it depends on your company, what you start. You know, like. 
what do you want to accomplish? I mean, look, I'll say one thing that's really important for crypto companies is like trust and security, uh, and basically trust in the code. So like your culture has to make sure it's like Boeing. Like crypto companies have to have not the way Boeing is, but the way Boeing should have been and the way Boeing had been for many years. Like Boeing's been a great company, um, but you can't prioritize anything over the safety of the code. Uh, and that's probably the, I, I think every, th that's one common cultural element that if you're in that space, um, you have to deliver on. And I, a great example of that is um, a company I'm on the board of Okta, who, you know, uh, Todd, who's the CEO, and really early on, um, and so they, Okta is like security, they hold your identity, um, and they log you into things, so like clearly trust is important in that thing, but look, when you're building a software company, there's all kinds of pressures, there's features, there's deals, there's this, there's that, um, but they were always committed to that idea in the culture that trust was important, and so important that they had a quarter, and where it was like right before they were going to raise money, they needed a deal. I think it was with Sony or some company like Sony that they had to get the deal with to make the quarter to raise the money. Like it was that kind of thing. And, uh, the rep had promised the customer like, Oh yeah, we're going to deliver this feature in this quarter, but they weren't going to deliver it for like two years. And it got to Todd to sign off uh, on this thing. And, He's like, now we're going to whip the quarter, and if we can't raise the money, then that's what it's going to be. But, like, we can't. If I let this go through, then everybody's going to know, like, I okayed the lie. And then once I do that, like, everything, like, in the culture, I, I can't get back to that. And so he did that, and, like, you know, I, thankfully I, like, twisted David Wyden's arm at Kosla, and he was a very good soul and invested in the company in the B round. Like he led it with $7 million, like the B round. So like, just to give you an idea how on a thread we were, but then you fast forward and you know, the big competitor was this company one login and one login was like coming out with features way faster than Okta. And like the, you know, they were always saying, Oh, like we're way better and da 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 da. And the CRV guys who invested in it were always teasing me. Um, but one day one login gets hacked, a breach. Okta's, never been breached. They went five years without any downtime, not even for maintenance. Like they're committed to that culturally. Like we're going to be there. We're not going to get breached. We may not have all the features, but like, that's the one thing you can count on us for. And that's when like your culture really defines your business. And, uh, and I think in crypto, you know, that, that, that is so fundamental. You, you can't, you can't be a crypto project successful without having that in the culture. Next question from Susie. If, if your CEO doesn't understand that the culture is more than the core values listed on the wall, how would you help <laughs> him understand the change needed? <laughs> Quantitative evidence, anecdotal, etc. Yeah, I mean, I th look, I, I, I think I would definitely give the CEO my book because another plug for it. <laughs> but it's tricky because people hate to hear... Because it really hurts, like as a leader, it hurts. There's little that you can say to a leader that hurts their feelings more than saying like the culture is busted. Cause, cause, and the reason it hurts their feelings is one, it's a reflection on them and two, they don't know what to do about it. So I think you have to help them with like, what do you do about it? And then also just be like very, very, very clear um, about what it is. Like here's the behavior we say we have, here's what we're actually doing. And so... 
you know, how do we move from a value to a virtue and make this a real thing? Um, but most leaders, I would say, you know, and I, in doing the book, it's funny because I talked to lots and lots of CEOs and people who um, were known for having like reason, even the companies, the CEOs who were known for having like good cultures just didn't have a lot of techniques or tools. Um, they didn't know a lot of these. And, and one of the kind of exciting things for me about writing the book, they were like, because I would go like, well, how do you do this? And they would go, well, I don't know how to do that. And I was like, well, this is how like the ancient samurai did it. And they would be like, wow. <laughs> and so that's when I knew uh, at least CEOs would like the book. That's perfect. <laughs> so we'll, we'll end on a light last question. Seriously. Uh, what is the best way to pitch my startup? This is not me asking. <laughs> Just a reminder. What is the best way to pitch my startup to you, John? How did you get Ben's time? Like, I think, like, a big part of, so I'll just be very real here. A big part of being an entrepreneur is the ability to find a way. Um, and that's, that's actually, that was my favorite thing. So I went to go see these guys. I was like, I just want to know what's going on in the company before they uh, asked me to be on the board, which I was excited to do. Um, but the thing that they had that was so clear, even when things were at their darkest, was... All they wanted to do was find a way. Like, we're going to find, wherever that door is, like, we're going to find it. Even if we have to look every hour, every minute to the last second we have on the clock, we're going to find it. Um, and so if you want to, like, get to me to pitch, I know so many people in Silicon Valley. Like, you just got to find one of them. And, like, have them, like, rep for you. That's the best way in. That's much better than, like, sending an email to business plans at 816T. I know it doesn't seem as fair, but like it is an entrepreneurial test and um, that does work better. So I know people aren't going to like it that I said that, but I just have to be honest. Sorry. I always tell the truth. So I'm good in every hood spot. That's what, that's what Drake says. <laughs> <laughs> All right. We're going to, we're going to close with that. I hope you enjoyed this evening's program brought to you by the Commonwealth Club of Silicon Valley. Again, we'd like to thank Ben Horowitz, co-founder and general partner at Andreessen Horowitz. All right. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks, John. The meeting is adjourned. <laughs>